After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, in Hebrew called Bethesda, which has five porticos. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and troubled the water. Whoever stepped in first after the troubling of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him and knew that he had been lying there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is troubled, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your pallet and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his pallet and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, The man who healed me said to me, Take up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your pallet and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse befall you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to This afternoon, right along with so many of you, I intend to be watching the Super Bowl. It is estimated there should be a hundred million people across the United States and around the world all watching this game. And while we're having a good time watching this game, I've been thinking about a man and his son who are going to be at the game who never dreamed that would be possible. You may recognize the name Brandon Cooks. Brandon Cooks is a wide receiver for the Los Angeles Rams. It's his first year with the team. And if you're playing with a team that makes it to a Super Bowl, then you're given a certain number of tickets, complimentary, that you can then give away. Now, you don't know how many friends you have (laughs) until you get to go play in a Super Bowl, and suddenly you have all kinds of family and friends and all these people who or wanting to call and ask you for tickets. That's certainly going to be the case and has been the case for Brandon. But knowing all this pressure was going to be on him, Brandon looked around and he saw someone that he felt needed to go to the Super Bowl. His name was Alfonso. Alfonso Garcia. He was the janitor for the Rams locker room. He would take care of the team all year long, always there making sure everything was nice and straight and fixed, and and he always had such a great spirit, always seemed to be in such a, a good frame of mind. Brandon just really was drawn to him all year, and suddenly it hit him. They were all going to the Super Bowl, but not Alfonso. And so he decided he wanted to give one of his pair of tickets away to him for him and his son 
to be able to go. So he went and he told the brass, the GM, I'd like to give one of my set of tickets away to, to Alfonso and his son. And the GM said, I think that's a great idea. As a team, we'll take care of their airlines and we'll take care of the hotel. We'll take care of them for the entire weekend. And so the decision was made and everybody got excited all about it. And, and so they set it up in the GM's office that Brandon would be there. There's this big ticket to the Super Bowl and ready to invite Alfonso in. The GM is there and they're going to have a camera. And, and someone goes to Alfonso and says, the GM wants to see you. Now, you can only imagine, of course, uh-oh, I'm in trouble now. What have I done? Am I going to lose my job? All these thoughts running through his mind. And when he gets there, it's almost kind of like they have to push him in the door. He's, he's so hesitant about coming inside. And when he comes inside, here is Brandon standing before him. And he has no idea the goodness, the blessing is about to be stowed upon him. And so Brandon says, Alfonso, you do such a great job. As an organization, we wanted to say thank you. Thank you for the way that you continue to bless us. You're always so helpful and so good. We're just grateful to you. And so we wanted to give you a, a trip to the Super Bowl. We'll take care of your round-trip airfare and, and your hotel. We've got tickets for you. We want you to take your son. We just want to say thank you for all that you do for us. And you see Alfonso standing there. He doesn't know what to say. I mean, he tries to speak and his voice is cracking. You can see the tears forming. He puts his hand over his heart and says, from the depths of my heart, I don't know how to say thank you. Thank you so much. I could never have dreamed this. I could never imagine that. Now you get to go home and tell your son, Brandon said, I, I can't thank you enough. He had no idea when he came in and stood before Brandon how he was about to be blessed. When I watched this video and learned this story, I loved it because it made me think so much about the story in the fifth chapter of John. You and I, if you remember, we're in this sermon series finding the way. We are in a Bible study together as a family of faith, and each week we're supposed to be reading one chapter from the book of John all the way to Easter. This last week, we, or this week, we're going to be reading the fifth chapter in John, and we're going to read the story of a man who is lying beside the pool in Bethesda. He'd been lying there for 38 years, and along would come Jesus and his world would be changed forever. He had no idea how he was about to be blessed. Now, as you and I look at this story, I wanted to stop for just a moment and say something about the book of John. Because we've been going through John and we've been looking at all these different theological statements John makes. We've been looking at different stories. But we're getting to a point that you're going to learn that Jesus will start making longer and longer speeches, soliloquies, big statements. Now, John, the book of John, you need to know, was written probably the last of all the Gospels. We believe it's probably written around 90. Paul's letters were written in the 50s, 60s. The book of Mark, probably in the 70s. 
And then came Luke and Matthew, and then finally John, written 50, 60 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And being written that far away, you need to understand that there was no one in Jesus' day running around with an iPhone recording everything he said. There was no reporter running around writing all the things down verbatim. No, the early church was able to remember the important things Jesus said. We have those in Paul and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and in John. But most scholars believe that what John was doing was taking the words of Jesus, these important things he said, and then explaining them to the early church. So he would take the statements of Jesus and then expound upon them so that the people of the early church at the end of the first century understood what the early church now knew living in the presence of the risen Christ. And so you suddenly get all these long verbatim statements about Jesus. And it's important to understand that, especially that he was speaking at that moment to an early church that was under persecution. Well, he comes to this story in the fifth chapter. And for a long time, scholars believed that this story of the man lying by the pool in Bethesda was probably a literary story that John had written to tell us an important theological point. They believed that because in Jerusalem, you could find four pools, four porticos by the sheep gate, but not five. There were four, not five. And so they thought, well, John helped to tell this story to make a point. And people worked on what is that point. Well, they believed that until the early 1900s. And in the early 1900s, with excavation going on in Jerusalem, they discovered a fifth pool. They discovered the fifth portico. And I know that when Reverend Wendy Lambert led the group to go to, to, holy, to the Holy Land, they went and stood there in the Sheep Gate, the, the five porticos and where the five pools were. No, it was a historical place, just as John had said. Then suddenly scholars had to go, well, yeah, it probably is a historical story. Where John then makes a very important theological point. I've told you over and over that John always tells us a story. And then he tells us the deeper meaning. Like in the second chapter, Jesus going to the wedding feast. And then he tells us, This is really about the gift of God's grace that is overflowing the best wine more than you could ever imagine to keep the party going. I have come that my joy might be in you and your joy might be full. Or in the fourth chapter, we look at the woman at the well and here is a man who told me everything I ever did. He knows me and still accepts me and loves me. Yeah, there was a story, but there was so much deeper meaning. And so now we come to the fifth chapter, and we're going to find the man who was lame, lying beside the pool. There had been an invalid for 38 years. And Jesus came and stood before him, and he had no idea of how blessed he was about to be. Jesus said to him, do you want to be healed? And immediately the man responds and says, I've been trying to get into the water, but every time that an angel disturbs the water, I can't get in. That is in later manuscripts. 
And we know that this is what was going on. There's the belief that you had this sacred pool, an angel would come, disturb the water, and if the water rippled, then they believed an angel had disturbed the water. First one in is healed. Which seems kind of interesting. It always means whoever is the healthiest among the sick is the first one to get in. But that was the belief. Now, we know that there was an underground stream that probably every now and then bubbled and the water would be disturbed. And so sometimes people said, ah, it's an angel came down and disturbed the water. It was a superstition. Now, before you get on down on the people for having a superstition, I just want to remind you, this last week I, I was in Charlotte, North Carolina for a couple of days at our general board of pensions meeting for the United Methodist Church. And I, we were staying in a very modern hotel. My room was on the 14th floor and every time I'd get on there and hit the button, it'd go up 10, 11, 12, 14, 15, 16. There, there, there was no 13th floor. Oh, there was a 13th floor, but we didn't call it the 13th floor because they knew how many people would refuse to stay on the 13th floor because that's supposed to be bad luck. Oh, we still have our superstitions in the 21st century. Was this a superstition? Well, there probably was some to that. And yet I also wonder if for 38 years... People were lying around this pool and nothing happened to anybody for 38 years. Why would they keep coming? Maybe it was a spiritual and holy place. And maybe something did happen in those moments to people who came. Well, Jesus came. We know in this story that apparently the disciples are not with him. It never mentions the disciples, only Jesus. That he comes to these five porticos around by the sheep gate. He walks around and he looks and he finds someone that he knows. He's been there a long time. And he says, do you want to be healed? And the man says, I can't get into the water. After the angel disturbs the water, someone else gets in before me. And Jesus says, pick up your bed and walk. And the man picks up his bed and, and he walks. Now, the fascinating thing about this story is the man did not know who Jesus was. We know this, I mean, because he's going to go right on in the scripture lesson and he'll be carrying his pallet and he gets stopped by the religious authorities. It's the Sabbath. You're carrying your bed. That's considered work. That's breaking the law. Why are you doing this? Well, the man who healed me told me to do this. And who was that? And he said, I don't know. Most of the stories of healing or miracles in Matthew, Mark, and Luke are always because of belief. Somebody believed. Somebody had faith. But this is a story where the man who was healed did not know who Jesus was. It wasn't because of faith. It wasn't because of belief. It was the gift of God's grace working in his life. And I believe... That's what John was wanting to say to the early church. That to a church that was still under persecution from the time of Nero in the 60s to Domitian in the first century, all the struggles, they've been pushed out. And John wants to say, do you understand? God's grace, 
It is this prevenient grace, the grace that goes before you when you don't understand it and you don't expect it and you didn't deserve it, God still works in your life. One day you look back and you begin to connect the dots. And you say, you know, if this hadn't happened, then that wouldn't have happened. If this hadn't happened, this wouldn't have happened. You look back and start to say, God's been at work in my life. Blessing me in ways I didn't understand and couldn't imagine in the moment. But God's grace has been at work in my life. Do you ever have those moments when you look back and just kind of see, I really have been blessed. I didn't see it. I didn't understand it. But that moment was so significant. John was trying to say to the church, don't despair. God's grace is working in your life and in your world. He is helping you to find your way. So what I want us to think about this morning, and there's really just two things that I want to say. First of all, I think the whole story hinges on when Jesus comes up to the man and says, do you want to be healed? One important question. Do you want to be healed? Notice how the man responds. Doesn't say yes. He immediately has an excuse. I mean, I can't get into the pool because there's no one here to help me. And before I can get in, somebody else gets in before me. Now, when I first read that, I thought, yep, that's, I can identify with that. There are those times in life when you don't seem happy and you complain the way life is. But are you doing anything to change it? Am I really just kind of satisfied with the way it is? I'll complain and I'll say I don't like it, but I don't do anything about it. Then on the other hand, I got to thinking, but he did have a point. He can't get in there because he needs help. He didn't have anybody to help him. That was true. And I thought, well, wait a minute. He's been coming for 38 years. So he's still showing hope. And then I thought, you know, I think that really is both of issues in all of us. There are those times when you have hope and you, you need help. You can't do it on your own. And then there's the times when I'm just willing to take an excuse and that's the way it is. And I just kind of accept it. Do you want to be healed? I was watching a speech a week ago of Mel Zuckerman. He's now 91 years old. He was speaking at the University of Arizona. He is so strong, so sharp. It was all about a donation he had made to help with the establishment of, uh, of a College of Public Health. He is so passionate about trying to help people find a quality of life. Mel and his wife Enid's story is really a, an amazing story. He, he was living on the East Coast. He was a CPA. Finally decided he hated his job. He's going to do something about it. He quit his job and they moved out to Arizona. And there he became a home builder. He was an entrepreneur, started building homes. And he kind of rode the boom and bust of Arizona, rising up in the 60s and crashing, 70s and ups and downs. He worked hard. There were good times. There were hard times. But he found the stress was growing and growing and growing. 
And what he found was he was coming home at night and he was so tired and so stressed, trying to find a way to relax and release. And he would come in and sit down in front of the television set and his drug of choice was Rocky Road ice cream. He always kept several half gallons in the freezer. And so he would go and get out a half a gallon of of Rocky Road ice cream and sit down and watch TV and just start eating. And he found that the more he ate, the better the TV show was. And after he'd killed about two-thirds of the carton, then he would think, I can't do I can't eat all of this in one time, one day. And he'd put the top back on and put it back in the freezer and he'd go to bed. And then he'd wake up about 2 a.m. and think, oh, this is another day. So he'd get up and he'd eat the rest of that half a gallon of ice cream and then he'd go back to bed. And this would go on day after day. And well, needless to say, his blood pressure was through the roof. His cholesterol was out of control. He was way overweight. He was not in a good place. He had a friend who was a doctor who said, you need to come in and let me do a physical on you. And he said, you know, we're also doing some research right now, trying to figure out not how old you are, but how old does your body say you are? And they ran all these tests on him. And in the end, they came back and the doctor said, well, I got some good news and some bad news. The good news is we didn't find anything else wrong with you that we didn't already know. The bad news is your body says you're 70 years old. He was 40. And he thought, I got to do something. I got to get this under control. So he tried to eat a little less Rocky Road ice cream, tried tried to do a little less. That went on for nine years. Nine years. And it got worse and worse. Until finally one day, his wife Enid put him in the car and they drove to Thousand Oaks, California. And there she took him to one of these spas, commonly known in the 1970s as a fat farm. It was very Spartan. It was a place you would go that let you eat a thousand calories a day. You had to exercise It's where you went to try to get into shape. And he showed up and it was him and 12 women. Enid was there to make sure he went through the orientation. The lady's name was Karma Keitzler. And Karma was a very strong lady and a compassionate lady. And she came to him afterwards and said, what are you doing here? He said, I I need help. I need help. And she said, fine, I'm going to work with you one-on-one. I'm coming by at 7 in the morning. And we're going to go walk for a mile and a half. He said, I can't do that. Yes, you can. I can't do that. Yes, you can. I can't do that. Yes, you can. He had had asthma since he was eight years old. He had always been told, you can't exercise, you can't play sports. She came by. They started walking. They'd walk and sit, walk and sit. Took them 38 minutes to walk a mile and a half. That put him in the bottom 2% of his age category in the population. She called the doctor, talked about his asthma medicine. Could they take it at a different time? All these different kind of things. Twice a day, she'd come by and they'd go. At the end of 10 days, he was walking a mile and a half in about 11 and a half minutes. That's at the pace of an eight-minute mile, which put him in the top 5% of people in his age category. He was feeling so good, he called Enid and said, I'm not coming home. I'm staying for a month. And he did. At the end of a month, 
He was running three miles a day. He had dropped 29 pounds. He not only was feeling better physically, but mentally, emotionally, spiritually. He found something was happening in his soul to the total person. I mean, it was one of those aha moments. Who am I? And at the end of the month, he came home and he said, Enid, I don't want to be a home builder anymore. And she said, I've been telling you, you needed to do something different. And he said, what I'd like to do is I'd like to build a spa, a place where people could come. And it's not so Spartan, a place that could be beautiful and they could eat healthy food. And we could have people there to talk about nutrition and exercise and spirituality, faith about your soul, the whole person. This was 1978, and they went to work. And in 1979, they opened Canyon Ranch Spa in Tucson, Arizona. It was so far ahead of its time. And in the end, people began to flock, and it was so successful. And they opened one on the East Coast, and now you'll find them on all the different cruise ships, and you'll find them at the Venetian in Las Vegas. And it's been amazing. This is their 40th anniversary this year. It turned out that Mel retired two years ago when he was 89 from running the business. And the last two years of his life has been spent, really all he and Enid working hard for their philanthropy to try to encourage people to experience the health and the wholeness of life. It was a moment in his life when he had to ask himself, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? And what he began to discover was God was moving in his life. So many grace moments, God was moving in his life in ways he had not seen, nor anticipated, nor understood. Do you want to be healed? It was Jesus who came and stood before a man who had been lying beside the pool there of Bethesda for 38 years. He had no idea who was standing in front of him or how he was about to be blessed. Do you want to be healed? John was trying to say, that's where we begin. But secondly, you'd expect after you've not been able to walk for all those years and you get healed, that you'd be out dancing and looking for your friends and throwing a party But it suddenly changes scenes and it says, and Jesus found him in the temple. The man had gone to the temple to worship and to pray, to give God thanks for what had happened to him. He understood he didn't deserve it. He understood it was so unexpected. He didn't know how it had happened. He came to give God thanks, to rejoice, to be grateful for how he had been blessed. And Jesus finds him and Jesus says, So, you've been healed. Do not sin, or something else worse will befall you. We need to look at that for a moment, because I don't want you to misunderstand the statement. In Jesus' day, the belief was, you do good, you'll be blessed. You do bad, and you'll be punished. Do not sin, something worse will befall you. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. If you know John, you know that John really is the gospel of love. His statements over and over you find in John. 
A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than to lay down his life for his friends. He always talks about love in the first letter of John. How can you say you love God if you can't love your neighbor? If you can't love those whom you have seen, how can you love God whom you haven't seen? John was always about love God and love your neighbor. Sin is when you separate yourself from God and when you separate yourself from one another. That's what sin is. Sin is when you no longer love God, when you no longer love those around you. The greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. He's warning, you can walk. You've been healed. Don't forget to love God and to love those who are around you because if you do that, worse things happen. You know, the worst thing is not being lame. The worst thing is not loving God and not loving those around you. You can do that while you're lame. If you don't do that, you lose life. You'll lose your way in the darkness. I'm glad you're healed. Now don't sin. For something worse befalls you. You will lose the joy of life if you fail to love God and to love one another. You know, it's why I think I've enjoyed so much this story of Brandon Cooks. I told you about how Brandon Cooks was so compassionate towards the janitor there for the Los Angeles Rams. Well, I guess in some ways I'm not really surprised because Brandon's such an incredible man of faith. You'll find him tweeting interesting comments like, what if God treated us like we treat others? That's worth thinking about. What if God treated us like we treat others? No, he's known as the archer. Because if you're watching today and Brandon Cooks scores a touchdown, you're going to find him in the end zone acting like he's shooting an arrow into the heavens. He does that because he likes the scripture, Psalm 144, 6, flash forth the lightning and scatter them. Send out thy arrows and rout them. No, many people when they score a touchdown will point into heaven, acknowledging God. For Brandon, he wanted to do something different, so he will shoot. He's known as the archer, his way of honoring God in those kinds of moments. And why does he do it? He was born and raised in Stockton, California. He had a mom, dad, three older brothers. Life was good. Loved his father. His father loved his four sons. But in his 40s, he started feeling a lot of chest pain. And everybody kept saying, you need to go to the doctor. But he didn't want to go. Finally, he agreed to go. He went to the doctor. He needed to have heart surgery. He finally agreed and scheduled it. And before he could have heart surgery, he had a heart attack at home. He died on the living room floor in the arms of his wife, Andrea. 48 years old, leaving behind this young boy, Brandon, at six years old. And Brandon said when his father died, everything began to cave in. His mom, who worked already, had to go get a second job to try to keep a roof over their head. His three older brothers... They just kind of lost their way. They were out of control. They, they lost their way. 
I mean, one brother would wind up being out of jail multiple times. Another one became a father at 15, barely would graduate high school. No, all kinds of struggles. His mom kept going to church every Sunday, taking the boys. Only Brandon seemed to be the one who was focused. The older boys would later say, we didn't have a direction. We were lost. He had purpose. He knew what he wanted. He wanted to go to school. He wanted to play football. He worked hard. And so he kept playing and did very well in high school. Enough that he got an offer to play football at UCLA and at, and at Oregon State. Everybody knew he was going to UCLA. He lived near there. The bright lights, the city, what excitement. And he chose to go to this little town in Oregon and went to Oregon State because he didn't want to be around all the temptation and the struggles of the big city. He thought he could focus there in Oregon State on the two things that were important. That was school and playing football. He met a woman there named Brianna. They began to date. He worked hard, did well in school and football. At the end of his junior year, he decided to forego his senior year, and he was chosen in the 2014 draft in the first round by the New Orleans Saints. First year's contract, well, it, you're capped as a rookie, but it wound up being four years at $8 million. And so he played for the New Orleans Saints for three years, did very well. But then it was the New England Patriots who needed a, a wide receiver and and so they traded a first-round draft choice and some others and money to get Brandon and brought him to the New England Patriots. Last year, Brandon Cook played for the New England Patriots in the Super Bowl. This year, he's going to play for the Los Angeles Rams in the Super Bowl against the New England Patriots. You see, at the end of last year, the contract expired, and now he could negotiate for real dollars, and it would put the... New England Patriots above the salary cap, so they traded him to the Los Angeles Rams. And his latest contract is for five years and $80 million. But for Brandon, it's never been about the money. It's been about family. He struggled so much as a young boy, looking at all the things that he didn't get to do. They didn't go on vacations. They didn't eat out. They didn't have things and he complained as a child until his older brother sat him down and said, Do you understand? Mom is doing the best she can. The reason that we eat beans and bread, it's all we can afford. She is doing the best she can. And he was a young boy, but it changed the way that he looked at her from then on. Never the same. He said, you've taken care of us. I want to take care of you. And so sure enough, the day came. And when he was picked in the first round and got a signing bonus, first thing he did was he bought his mother a brand new Mercedes SUV. And then at the end of his rookie season, when it became obvious, you are going to make it in the NFL and keep on playing. Then he bought her a house. Mom doesn't have to work anymore. But it wasn't just about mom. It was about brothers and their family. And he married Brianna. And he hopes one day that they have children. And he wants to take care of the future cooks. That they will get to experience those things he did not experience. 
But it's not just about family of his own. He goes back to Stockton, California to talk to the young people there and say there's an alternative to drugs and to gangs. You get to make a choice. Do you want to be healed? Do you want something different? You can have it. No, he goes back and talks to them. He's a young man who has been so incredibly blessed. But he's never forgotten what it means to love God and to love those around you. And so even though he is brand new in L.A., he already loves his teammates. He already loves the fans. He loves the janitor who he stood before to bless in a way that he could never have imagined. John wanted to say to the early church, do you understand God's prevenient grace? It goes before you in ways you do not understand. It comes. Do not sin. Bad things can happen in life. Far worse things. Don't forget to love God and love your neighbor. Jesus came to the pool of Bethesda and he stood in front of a man. He had no idea how he was about to be blessed. Jesus was there to help him find his way. It's in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen.